It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 216, with Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. This week, AI everywhere, sideways moon landing, computer screens that wrap, see-through, and more. Hello, Gary. Welcome back. Hey, we managed hey, to skip next week for the fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> one of the one of those weeks where you know nothing's really happening. Let's let's just save ourselves an hour of our day. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> yep, indeed. So, one of the things, and you know, to be completely transparent to our listener, uh, we were actually chatting about this just before we started recording. Um, AI is showing up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zoom, which is what we use uh, for these, has its AI companion, I think they call it. Yeah. Um, so it's analyzing what we're doing and producing a transcript and or a summary and or who knows what the heck. Um, Crisp, which is the audio software that I have talked about before that removes um, the uh, the currently the lawnmower in the background and the occasional corgi. With, um, it too, you're running all my audio through it. It's doing the same thing. It's basically generating a transcript and um, then you know, giving you the option of running some analysis on that. If it was good, it would add cor- more corgis. I think that's... <laughs> yes. Well, that's, See, that's what everybody here. wants. I mean, yeah, you, you know. Have, you have to turn that on. Oh, okay. um, and uh, we have also talked, I think, very briefly about a tool called Cast Magic, which is specifically for podcasts, mm-hmm. where after you're done recording, you upload the audio and it generates a transcript and then also gives you all sorts of options. It gives a bucket load of options targeted at various uses for your podcast. Anyway, it dawned on me this morning as I was doing some work that AI is showing up absolutely everywhere. Mm. And the thing that made me think that is that um, for the nonprofit I support, I was uh, converting a Word document to a PDF for upload to our website. And in doing so, it automatically fired up Adobe Reader. Mm. And there was this little button or logo or whatever you want to call it in the upper right that basically had AI, new AI features. Um, I have not looked into what kind of AI features a PDF reader would have. Um, I'm sure they're useful to somebody. Um, but what what just struck me is that um, it's it's worse than blockchain in the sense that when blockchain started to be popular a few years ago for various things, including uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, um, you know, blockchain was the solution to everything. Every had, everybody had to have blockchain. They were implementing mm-hmm. blockchain where it didn't even need to be implemented. Um, and it feels like the same thing has been happening with AI, um, except that, you know, there's the possibility in all these cases that AI could actually be useful. Mm. Um, but it's just showing up everywhere. Um, and I'm just, I, I, I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the main differences, because I have heard AI compared to blockchain because they they kind of came one after the other, right? We had a right. couple of years of like blockchain was everywhere. And then now it's AI seems to be filling that same niche, like, you know, take a random thing in tech or even in the world and then plus AI, you know, whereas before it was plus right. blockchain. Um, the I think a, a big difference though, why AI is bigger uh, by any measure is it's so easy to kind of demonstrate the, the use for it or mm-hmm. even try it for yourself. Whereas with blockchain, if you're talking strictly blockchain, you know, a, a regular person can say, hey, be great if uh, our, our, you know, the records for my company were somehow stored in blockchain. Like you have, there's a lot of work that would have to be involved before that right. happened. Right. Uh, or if you talk about just the part of blockchain that everybody talked about, which was cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. um, it's either you own some cryptocurrency or you don't. You know, you could go <laughs> on, start an account and buy a Bitcoin you know, if you wanted to, but if you don't, then it's like, well, it's just talk. Whereas AI, it was so easy from day, you know, from the 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 moment that everything changed when uh, ChatGPT, you know, went public with their right. with their thing, you the could just go on and try yeah. it. Yep. You could just say, oh, you could ask it something, and you would get a result and be like, oh, okay. 
So it's easy to use it for small things. And now, of course, it's everywhere. Like what you said, uh, I think, uh, look, there was an article about eight days ago about uh, Adobe Reader getting it. And what you basically use it for, according to this article, I haven't tried it because I don't have Adobe Reader installed. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe, but you know, maybe I should now. Uh, the The thing you would use it for is you download like a 32-page PDF of something. And now you could actually ask the AI questions like, can you, you know, what, what, do, if it's a legal document, you might be able to ask it. Like, is there a section here that deals with whatever? I was actually looking at uh, a, a PDF document of HOA rules the other day, just browsing it. Um, but it's like, wow, if I wanted to actually like know whether something was covered, you, you don't know what section it's in. AI could just, I could just ask, is is there a rule covering wind chimes for my HOA? And it would be able to say, yes. Now I could probably just search for the word wind chimes. That's not a great example, but you know, you get the idea. Um, it's interesting. While you were talking, I went ahead and fired up uh, Acrobat because I've got yeah. it. Of course, I've got the, the, the suite. I use Photoshop as well. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's got the what's new dialogue, AI assistant. Yeah beta of course all of these ai things are in beta which is the other thing that's yeah, yeah. kind of hilarious yeah. ai assistant can answer your questions about a document present key takeaways provide insights and more all powered by generative ai save time and work efficiently yeah um, which is also a yeah. generative summary feature get document outlines sure. and summaries yeah yeah which is this kind of stuff we've been talking about using ai for for a long time uh not specifically with a pdf but mm -hmm. with uh, article, web page, uh, data, you know, anything, yep. getting yep. summaries, prompt, asking questions, prompting it with questions. Um, so, yeah, indeed. It's, uh, uh, I just, anyway, it's just, it's, it's both um, interesting, the state of the world that we're in, AI everywhere, and um, kind of funny that we coincidentally stumbled into it this morning. Yep. So, what you got? Uh, well, speaking of AI, uh, <laughs> there's a, there was an interesting story uh, about a, a customer of Air Canada who um, needed to fly uh, to go to a funeral and uh, had a question about how to, how, you know, you can get special airfares a lot of times right. when you right. fly to a funeral, uh, especially considering sometimes you have to fly very quickly and the good airfares you're supposed to book weeks out. So, um, so this person happened to go to the website and happened to go to the little chat bot right. and didn't know how to purchase an airfare for, you know, with bereavement fees or whatever. Um, so asked the chat bot about it. The chat bot actually responded with some information saying that they could purchase it now and then they would have like 30 or 90 days or something to then contact Air Canada and say, you know, I want a partial refund because I was doing it for this reason. So they took that uh, they took that response from the chatbot, uh, you know, as like, oh, that's the rule because this is a fit. This is the Air Canada chatbot on the yep. Air Canada site. Yep. They took it as the rule. They bought, bought their tickets. They flew, and then uh, afterwards, they tried to get a refund on it, and were told, no, the policy is that you we don't give refunds. You have to purchase the the special fare right at the beginning. So the chatbot was wrong, and. Anybody that's used large language model things knows that this happens from time to time. You ask it questions about various things. Sometimes you get answers that aren't quite right. In this case, they they trained a large language model on Air Canada's rules right? and then set it loose to answer questions. And it got this particular item wrong. It's strangely, it, it got it wrong, but it actually included a link in the answer to say, for more information, go here. Mm -hmm. And if the customer had clicked on that link, they would have found that the rule was there saying you have to purchase the special fare at the beginning. So they argue that because, well, they should have clicked and read the the uh, page, um, that they, you know, they couldn't do the refund. And the person took them to court and said, well, they're a fit their official thing on their site, this chat that I went to told me this. So um, you know, an Air Canada lost and had to uh, refund the money. Now, the the thing I find interesting here is not that this is surprising. This should not be surprising to anybody that uh, a large language model AI will make mistakes. We know yep. that. Yep. So maybe using it for things like this 
uh, doesn't quite make sense yet. Um, but I was thinking about it and I thought, so you're telling me in the history of Air Canada customer support, they've never had a human give out wrong information? Because <laughs> I'm certain they probably have, right? Because right. humans are prone to error. And I'm sure, matter of fact, I could, I, I'm pretty sure that in my own personal history, I've been told the wrong thing <laughs> by an airline representative, right? So it's not like the problem was they had an AI instead of a real person because it could have happened through the real person as well. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing to to think about, you know, like they've since disabled this chatbot reportedly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're getting back to real people chatting with you. Um, but I don't know, maybe we, we don't get from the article the real data, like how many mistakes per week does does the human customer service you know, do they make right. uh, and how many mistakes did the chatbot make and how much money did it cost the airline is you know what it comes down to because this wasn't it wasn't like it prevented the person from flying they bought the ticket they flew and you know all that it was just a money thing it was like how much was this going to cost and right. how much sure did it cost the airline you know? more than that in the in the settlement i'm sure well yeah it was a very it seemed like it was a small claims court kind of thing right. so the interesting thing is is that in the end uh the airline really didn't lose any money because the person got refunded the amount of money for the fare that you know it should have been a, a bereavement fare right 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 so it wasn't like the airline really lost money if if the chatbot had been correct and said you should call this number and tell them what's going on mm -hmm. to book this fare, they would have ended up paying the same amount. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, all right, so you you spent all this money on a chatbot. It got something wrong. In the end, it really cost you nothing. And so why cancel? The, why stop the chatbot? I mean, I assume it's temporary. You know, it's not like Air Canada is going to be like, nope, forevermore. We're all human customer support. I'm sure at some point, them and everybody else We'll be using large language models. Anyway, it was an interesting story uh, with lots of different aspects to it. The and, question, okay. yeah. Well, oh, a no, go ahead. questions that come to mind for me. Yeah. Um, one is, what was the chatbot trained on that yeah. led it to believe the policy was other than it really was? Um, my understanding from most hallucinations is that they are um, stringing. Um, unrelated information or other things together um, that shouldn't be. So I'm just curious what it was, what specifically yeah. it had been trained on. Um, and the other thing that I wasn't quite sure of, I, I read the article when it first came out, I think last week, um, was, is it obvious to the customer that they are not chatting with a real human? Yeah. Um, because I think that or even better, that they're chatting with AI. Mm -hmm. It would be a horrible but better defense if you could say, well, it was obviously an AI, and we all know that AI make, AIs make mistakes. Um, that's a horrible defense, mm -hmm. but it's closer to the truth, right? Whereas if the chatbot is positioned as looking and acting exactly like um, a real human, then, I mean, the customer can't, the customer is absolutely right. Of course, they're going to believe it because it's what the company told them to do. Um, yeah. So I, I I gather that it was trained uh, on all the company rules, and I could see I've I've been using AI enough, you know, large language model stuff enough to just I can envision how this happened. Right? They probably have a lot of other rules that do apply. There are times when you can get a refund and right. things like that, and. So just trying to interpret all the rules, it basically acts like a human. Like if you asked a human to read all the different rules without knowing the question in advance, read all these rules, you don't know what questions are going to be asked. And then you're asked a whole bunch of questions about policy and then you get one wrong and it's like, oh, right, that's not, that applies to like these 15 other things, but the right. bereavement thing is different. And so, and it depends how the question was phrased, you know, mm -hmm. to the chatbot mm -hmm. and all that. I think, um, the interesting uh, thing about whether or not the person knew they were talking to a chatbot, I don't know if that's the case, but these types of chatbots have been around for a long time, long before large language models. The typical thing that would happen is there'd be this chatbot 
and I mean, at least a decade now, these have been around, sure. uh, that is knows how to answer some basic things. And a lot of times it's very simple. It's not using this AI at all. It's just looking right. for certain words, certain phrases you're using and trying its best. And the idea is that it might ask the first five questions on its own and then hand you over to a real person mm -hmm. seamlessly if uh, you know, you're still there. Like it, you may actually go, for instance, on a bank, you may go into a little chat thing. And if you say, you know, use the word balance, it might just respond with, are you looking for your, the balance for your account? And if you respond, yes, it says the balance for your account is this. Right. And did that answer a question? You say, yes, thanks. And then it's done, right? And a human never had to be involved. Or if you say, no, that's not what I want, it will say, hold on a second. And then it goes to a real person who then can see the five or six lines of the chat so far and just pick up from there. That's been around for a long time. And it's hardly ever disclosed that that's what's going on. It's just like, what can I help you with? And a lot of times there's a picture of somebody with a little headset <laughs> on. And, you know, just like they're all cheerful waiting to, and it's like, am I, is that the person I'm actually talking to? No, of course it's not the person you're talking to. That person doesn't even work for this company. They're, they work for a modeling agency <laughs> and <laughs> they got into some clip art, right? Um, but yeah, so it's been around for a long time. It's just that it's getting weirder now because before there might've been like a small set of canned responses uh, to very specific parameters of things you would have asked. And now Maybe. all of a sudden it's imitating intelligence, but right. it's not a real person. Maybe it's just me, but um, I definitely recognize uh, the pre-programmed chats that we've seen in the past 10 years. Um, they're, they're, oh. To me, they're very obvious. Um, they're basically what they're, they're what used to be called expert systems, decision expert trees. systems. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That, I, that's the term. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, some amount of knowledge that's been codified into a decision tree and depending on the answer at each step of the, or each node in the tree, um, mm -hmm. it takes you down a branch and some of the branches terminate. You're done. Goodbye. Thanks for calling. And some of the branches don't, and that's where they get handed off to a real person. But it always seemed like it was clearly a real person. The problem, the confusion comes from the fact that during these 10 years where these things existed, it is still the case that a chat could be from start to finish with a real person. Mm, yeah. And they, I mean, sometimes it's clear, but very often it's it's intentionally not clear. Um, you know, they try to make it look like the chatbot is a real person, like you said. Um, some of us can tell uh, just because. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, you know, the the average consumer, yeah, maybe not. So you're still taking it all though as um, uh, you know the the word from the company, regardless of whether it's a human at the end of the chat, a decision tree, an expert system at the end of the chat, or now mm -hmm. an AI at the end of the chat. Um, the intent is, you know, they're providing you information you should believe and you have no reason not to. Yep. And I, it, it would be interesting if some companies went and offered you the choice. And I think usually most people would be thinking, oh, the choice, because you want to be able to choose a real human right from the start. And mm -hmm. I actually want the opposite. I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, that's actually why I go like, I like to go to web pages to find out hours of operation of a, uh, of a business and, and basic stuff. You know, it's like, it's like, don't make me call you. I don't want to have oh, to talk to a person. To talk um, to a real person, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, which makes me a lot more, I guess, uh, you know, closer to Gen Z than Gen X, which is what I am, which is a yeah. strange thing, right? Um, but yeah, but it, you know, it's a lot of times it's just, it's like, oh, I have a stupid question. I I don't want to bother a person with it. Or I have a stupid question and it's 3 a.m., right? <laughs> or, I, or I have a series of questions, but I'm not, I can't engage, right? I want to have a chat window open on the side. And I want to be able to ask a question and then check back 10 minutes later to see if there's been a response right. of some sort and do it on my own time, right? So I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of reasons, although most people that would say, I want a choice, are going to be asking for the choice of a real person, which, of course, is what companies are trying to you know avoid because the right. cost. People cost more money. Yeah. Exactly. All righty. Oh, yeah. So in mm -hmm. space news this week. Um, this was kind of interesting. I was watch. I did not watch it live, but um, the we've landed on the moon again for the first time in something like fifty years. 
um, we did it sideways, which just, <laughs> which just, I mean, on one hand, it cracks me up, but on one hand, I know that that's devastating for, for the folks that, um, that have been working on this project. I did not realize how big that lander was. Mm. Um, it's, it's apparently the size of a big refrigerator, yeah. um, which is, you know, quite substantial. And, uh, apparently there was a problem. Uh, that they identified before it landed, but the, um, you know, and they tried to do a couple of different things. I think what the, the story that I read was that they were trying to actually update its uh, software uh, to basically handle the landing differently because the primary system was apparently turned off with a physical yeah. switch. Yeah. And so they had this secondary system, which was in fact a system that they were bringing along just to test, not actually use. And they used one orbit around the moon to be able to figure out how to make that work and then upload the instructions to the lander, which I thought was just amazing in and of itself. That's, yeah. you know, this, this just in time doesn't even come close. I mean, it's like amazing that you can do that. Uh, from this far away and um, and have it be apparently as good as it was. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it it apparently landed on a rock or something or or there's a, a rock under one or a couple of feet or it's it's unclear to me exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. but um, it looks like or sounds like it landed fine. It just tipped over once it was done. Um, mm -hmm. And what concerns me about this is that, um, you know, they're saying, hey, we're hearing from it. It's great. We've got telemetry. We've got, um, you know, it's sent back at least one picture. Um, but you know that it's not going to be able to fill its entire mission. Sideways. Yeah. yeah, they've said but that. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, and the thing that I haven't seen, I've seen this, I saw this morning that the length of the mission will be mm -hmm. something like five days shorter yeah. because of the way that it handled. But what I haven't seen is a list of, okay, here are the things we were going to do here are the ones we're going to be able to pull off or yeah. here are the ones that are going to be affected. And here are the ones that, sorry, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I, I know that that's just really tough for the people that are working on this. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's, it's a, um, you know, the fact that it, what is it? Any landing you can walk away from is a good landing. In this case, any landing that you can transmit from is probably right. a good landing. Right? Which is one measure, yeah, one measure of a good landing of a, of a space probe. It is interesting though, how how our, we've been having great difficulty uh, by us, I mean the whole earth, right. uh, with moon missions yes. recently. Whereas like our Mars missions are great. Oh, we're, na we're nailing those. <laughs> yeah, it's like we could send something to Mars, we seem to be able to do that really well. And we seem to have been able to do stuff to the moon. You know, there was a period of about five or six years in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, yes. we were able to do some, you know, great moon missions. And now all of a sudden, we can't, you know, there's a, an issue with every single little mission. Right. Um, even this one, this one, the interesting thing I I, I thought was, you know, well, it's going to be five days less of a, of a mission. And I thought, well, don't we have other, we have space probes like the Voyagers that, you know, go for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. uh, we have stuff on Mars that goes, you know, oh, it's supposed to be 90 days, ended up being like two years, three years. Right. And it, it turns out that this thing, you know, you know the where, where it landed, it had a certain amount of sunlight to charge up. Mm -hmm. Then it's going to enter lunar night, oh. uh, which is going to be for a period of time. And the temperature in lunar night is so low that basically it'll break all the electronics. And so they knew that there was going to only be however many days before they had the uh, ability to uh, you know, do anything with this and Lunar mm -hmm. Night would destroy the machine. Um, but just now they they have even less time or they'll be able to do even less with it before that that night comes, which was a kind of interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know the the track record on Mars is incredible. Like you said, the 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 projects that were intended to run for ninety days, you know, they're running for multiple years. Or the little helicopter that they were hoping could make, you know, like half a dozen flights, yeah. something like fifty or sixty or seventy before it finally. Uh, I think all it did was crack a blade, but um, you know, yeah, it's it's incredible. It really is unfortunate. Something so so close, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. is having so much trouble. Yep. Yeah. So. Um, so there's some other interesting tech news that's right up our alley as tech Yay. enthusiasts, right? <laughs> so uh, Lenovo uh, showed this concept laptop. 
uh, that's really interesting. And it's got a whole bunch of different things going on. Mm -hmm. um, the one that's getting the most attention is the fact that the screen is see-through. And, and so it looks like a pane of glass. Mm -hmm. And then the screen appears, you know, the over it, regular computer stuff on top of it. The the reason that it's getting a lot of attention is because it's been for years and years now in movies and TV shows. Yep. Whenever they want to show something futuristic, slightly futuristic, they show these transparent computer screens. Even movies that are not futuristic at all, they're supposed to take place today. For some reason, when they get to a computer expert or a hacker or somebody, they're using a transparent display, which just doesn't you know, exist, or at least not until now. Um, so the, and people see it and they usually say, I want that. Oh, I really want that. So <laughs> Lenovo has been, you know, obviously work and other people have been working on trying to get that. And now we have a, a one machine <laughs> in the world, this demo machine that has it. it. It's interesting for a few reasons. First of all, it's, um, it, it's only 55% transparent when turned off. So if it's off, it's like shaded glass, right? You can see through it, but it definitely darkens everything. So it's not mm -hmm. like a completely transparent piece of glass like most people would expect. Uh, it also is very low resolution. 720p is the best they could do right now, right? Really? But yeah, you know, they probably can improve on that in the future. Mm -hmm. um, it also, uh, now that it exists, uh, people can actually see the demo. A few tech journalists were allowed to actually use it. Uh, it does bring up some interesting things about like, okay, we have it. Uh, do we really want it? Because <laughs> it, it brings up some problems. Like, first of all, it's like, what's the use case for this? Right. Because if you're sitting in your office, um, chances are you have a wall behind your screen anyway. Uh, or even if you don't, you don't want to see through the screen. You want to see stuff on the screen. That's why you right. have the screen. So there was, there's that. It's like, okay, so most people using computers are not going to really want this. It's certainly not want, going to want to pay a premium to basically get a, a worse screen. Right. Um, also, privacy issues because apparently you just see the reversed image on the other side. Ooh, yeah. So now they say, well, you can make it uh, opaque. So they have a feature. I don't think that was demonstrated, but they said, oh, when this comes out, whenever that is, you can make it opaque, which uh, I, one journalist hilariously pointed out. It's like, we have that now. <laughs> like <laughs> a cheap screen could do that now, right? It's not, it's not a feature. Um, so there's that. The uh, And also it's like, you know, why do you necessarily want to see through your screen? The I actually came up with some good reasons why you may want to see through the screen, but it's kind of a, they're all specialty cases, but not super specialty because, you know, they make it seem like in some of these articles, like, oh, it would just be like a rare thing that you would want this, like an art, like they actually point out, oh, this could be for artists. You know, they could be doing stuff and actually see mm -hmm. what they're working on on the other side. Um, but I actually think like in some cases, uh, thinking of uh, people that are in some sort of customer service uh, line of work, like a hotel front desk or customer service desk or mm -hmm. restaurant host, you know, the host stand, um, having a screen there that's sometimes transparent, sometimes not, and sometimes it's semi-transparent could be really useful uh, in those cases. So I could see a screen like this if it became um, something they could easily, you know, you could have as a standalone screen being used in those situations. But a bigger situation, if this type of screen can actually be used on laptops and can be cheap enough, I think could be in, uh, in education in terms of, think of a college lecture hall. And now if you're in a classroom, it's flat and your laptop's on the desk and you can look down at your laptop screen or look up at the teacher. But in a lecture hall, right. you look down at the teacher and the teacher looks up at you. So today what you have is a lot of students that have to peer over the top of their laptops to see the teacher and perhaps what the teacher is demonstrating. And a teacher that basically looks up at a sea of laptops and doesn't see faces. So that would be kind of an interesting thing where it would open it up where any situation where you, you need communication like teacher and students in a lecture situation, having a transparent screen could you know, bring something back to, you know, those situations that's been missing. So I think there are uses for it. Um, but, you know, I we'll have to say, and, and there's just going to be people that are going to get them because they, they're cool. 
you know, like the, those ho the hotel reception desk thing is a legitimate reason to use it. But even when it's not needed, like, you know, the a front reception for some cool business, it'd be cool to have the person at the reception desk have a really cool looking screen that's transparent, right? A status so thing. The, the use case that pops out to me immediately yeah. mm -hmm. um, is if you couple this with a, um, uh, a cam camera, Yes. Pointing the other way, right? They pointing have that. From they, the screen. So it's and that is on a, this machine. It's a, okay. It's basically yeah. a form of augmented reality. Yep. Um, but um, there are definitely scenarios where, um, you know, you have something in front of the, of the screen, which I guess would be behind the screen if, if we're talking about it correctly, yeah. um, that the camera could recognize and then the software could then overlay something on that physical yes. object on the screen. So, and they, they demonstrated that they have a front facing or a back facing camera and they, you know, they showed a flower behind the screen mm -hmm. and then it came up with a little pointer on the screen that said, this is the type of flower it is. Um, so they showed that as a possible use for it. Mm -hmm. I think it could even be cooler. Like if you can imagine the camera, working well enough that it can capture exactly what it is that you see through the screen. And then it could record that. So imagine you're taking notes, right. but what you see through the screen is actually being recorded in the camera. And as you type on the screen in your note-taking app mm -hmm. or draw on it using you know, this, a stylus, mm -hmm. that that is actually overlaid. So when you play back the video later on, you have multiple layers. You've got the video layer and it looks just like the screen you know, what the screen was showing and you have the layer of you drawing or typing. Now, the thing is you could technically do that now without the transparent screen. Like right. on Macs, you already have the ability to use your iPhone as a camera and there are mm -hmm. already little attachments where you can put your iPhone on top of a laptop. So you could face it forward or, behind, you know, shooting behind the camera or behind the laptop and then be recording while you're taking notes Right. So it's only a software problem then to actually create an app that shows you what the camera sees on your screen and allows you to take notes and then records those as layers into some sort of video file, which you can then play back. And you don't need a transparent screen for that. So, you know, because you could kind of make the screen transparent in the same way the Apple Vision Pro is transparent. The camera is actually figuring out what the screen is hiding and showing it to you. So it's not, the other person doesn't see it as transparent. Somebody looking at you right, doesn't right. see it as transparent at all, which solves the privacy thing. But you kind of see it as transparent because it's not blocking your view, it's augmenting your view. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it could it'll be, be interesting. It'll be interesting. The, the one difference between most oh. sci-fi and this, of course, is that um, there's no physical screen in sci-fi. It's just floating Some... in here. Well, no, sometimes the ones, the movies and things I'm thinking of actually usually are a pane of glass, like that's in there. Um, but, you know, there are examples of it being like just floating to like a hologram. Right. But right. I was even, th I was thinking of the ones where there's a physical screen, it's just transparent. Um, you've seen that a lot. I saw it in some movie really recently too. I can't remember what it is, but there's that. Now this laptop has more than just that as a demo. It also has something that I've talked about for years. I may have talked about it in one of our very first episodes. The bottom part mm -hmm. where the keyboard would normally be right. uh, is actually a big touch screen. And so the keyboard can appear on it and you can type on the touch screen at right. a full size keyboard, or you could use a stylus and draw on it like a tablet. Mm -hmm. um, I've I've argued for years that Apple should be doing that or at least testing that out using haptic feedback to kind of trick you into thinking you are actually typing on a keyboard. Um, they certainly do that with the iPhone and, and they do that with their trackpads. Uh, you know, to the point is we've talked before about how Apple trackpads, um, you know, the click down trying to convince people that it's not actually moving is hard because it feels like it's moving and right. they could do the same thing with multiple haptic feedbacks on the keyboard actually kind of give feedback that feels like you're actually typing not still not on a you know mechanical keyboard kind of situation but better than just tapping a pane of glass um so they have that and of course it's, you can do so many cool things because you can not only change the keyboard layout 
uh, as much as you want, uh, apply keyboard shortcuts to various things and actually have them labeled as such, but you could have alternative keyboards. So if you're in a music creation app, right. it could be filled with little controls for music creation rather than a QWERTY keyboard, for instance. So and if you yeah. really are in a sci-fi program, you can actually make it a, uh, a Star Trek touchscreen. Yeah. Fancy whatever they are that you can never actually read on TV. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that's a more, I mean, that's that's something that's been possible for a long time now, yes. but yeah. you just don't see it. I really wish uh, Apple or somebody would jump on that. And especially considering the fact that when the uh, touchscreen phones, the iPhone, you know, being the first big one right. came out, people were like, oh, that keyboard's no good because it's just on glass. Right. And, you know, then you just have people now, of course, that type super fast on those all the time. It may not be a, a specific individual who can do that, right? There's still plenty of people that have trouble with it. Right. But there's certainly tons of people that can type super fast on an iPhone or Android screen with a keyboard. So the idea that, oh, it will never be good having a glass keyboard um, I think is is a wrong assumption to make. It might not be good for some people, but it may be very good for other people. So anyway. Yeah, no, interesting stuff. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, as you say, if anywhere, right? It's, it's, it's almost very cool technology in search of a problem. Yeah. Um, so in, in related yeah. um, uh, news, uh, Another proof of concept that um, I stumbled across that just cracked me up. Do you remember slap bracelets? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically all they were was a, uh, a cutoff piece of, um, uh, you know, the roll up measuring tape kind of stuff. And uh, because it's curved, if you whacked it on your arm, it would automatically curl around and it would be a bracelet. Yeah. Um, imagine your phone doing that. Mm. <laughs> Motorola has a concept that is basically not a foldable phone. Those have been around for a while. Um, this is a curvable phone. And it's the kind of a thing where, and there's actually pictures in the related article, of it actually wrapped around somebody's wrist. Mm. Um, and it just, I mean, there's a use case earlier in the article where it's just, you know, folded back a little bit. So it's kind of like... It has its own built-in stand if all you care about is the top two-thirds of the screen, which is fine for like a clock or something like that. Yeah. But um, um it just it's it's another one of those things where, okay, um, who who was asking for this exactly? What, <laughs> pro what problem were they trying to solve? Um, I just yeah. found it fascinating that we can do it. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? The fact that you can have now have um a telephone screen, um, clearly not glass. I have no idea what kind of um plastic they're using and how resilient it is compared to the uh, the gorilla glass most phones are using these days but um i just i just found it very cute and related to uh, to what you just brought up with the transparent screen yeah no i think there's a lot of interesting possibilities with flexible screens like this especially if they can be that flexible they mm -hmm. can wrap around your wrist um yeah I, I i could see maybe it's not you know the in the end it's not taking something that looks like phones do now and just right. bending it but you know having instead of a, a a watch that's just the watch face and the rest is the band having the whole thing be a you know just a band right you know so you have it's not as wide as a phone but it still wraps around your wrist right so you could look at the top and you could see the time but you could look also at the back of your wrist and see some other information uh maybe and maybe the front uh, of your wrist, like, you know, as you're holding, I don't know, as you're holding your hand in one direction, the front has the camera part on it. Right. So you kind of hold your wrist in one way. And then you could see on the screen of the other part of your wrist, exactly what it is you're filming. I mean, there's, so there's a lot of interesting, uh, ideas that could come from this that may not be just, let's take a phone and wrap it around a wrist, but let's take parts of the, you know, can we do a camera like that? Can we do a camera that's got some smart features? Can we do just a, uh, some sort of notification style bracelet, you know, a lot of cool things that could be done. And so, in a larger format, you could also see it. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that always, um, you know, I, I just notice is that whenever you see a large screens being used now in displays, mm -hmm. um, you know, like if you're going through a mall or an airport, they've got these 
big, huge screens that have advertisements, or maybe it's the flight arrival times or any of those kinds of things. Um, they're all, by definition, they have to be uh, rectangular and flat. Maybe they don't have to be. Maybe mm. they can wrap around a pole instead of oh. taking up more room, right? Yeah, um, you know those kinds of those kinds of things are are potentially related to this same kind of technology. That's much bigger, which makes it seem like it would be a little bit easier to do. But then I'm not a material science person, so I really don't know. Um, I would I would love to see a pole wrap screen. Yeah, that also has cameras. And that what the cameras are used for is to detect where you're standing. So you walk up to the pole in any direction, <laughs> and it shows you the map facing you. You don't need to walk around the pole right. to get to the orientation of the pole. The pole will orient to you. Oh, man, the first time that comes out, people are going to be so creeped out. They just <laughs> are. <laughs> you think yeah. they're worried about being tracked now. Yeah, it's just it's just some simple. It's just absolutely, yeah. No, I, I motion totally detection. It. It's oh, there's motion over here. Yeah, and like so it. here's the map. And then if somebody walks by uh, the other side of the pole, it's like oh, there's some motion over here. I'm going to show a map on this side of the pole as well. Flip screen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Really cool. So speaking of screens, more screens. One, one last little thing here is um, so this was uh, I didn't discover this, but I have enjoyed this. Um, so the uh, many years ago, not that many years ago, uh, Quentin Tar Tarantino came out with a movie called The Hateful Eight. Have you seen The Hateful Eight? Uh, we have. It's it's been a yeah. while, like you said. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a his western in his group right. of films he's making. It, it's his western. It's great. It's uh, Kurt Russell, Samuel L. Jackson, and um, a whole cast of 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 others. Jennifer Jason Lee, most notably. Anyway, one of the interesting. Yet one of the interesting things about it is Tarantino shot it in 70 millimeter ultra okay. widescreen. Okay? okay. In a way that you basically, there are no theaters that show 70 millimeter anymore. Right. At the time it came out, he produced a limited set of 70 millimeter prints, film prints and sent them around. And there were only a very limited number of theaters that showed this. Fortunately for me, one of those was in Denver. And I did actually go to that theater and sat and watched, probably for the last time in my life, <laughs> a 70 millimeter film in a theater. I figured, why not? I'm going to go see the movie. It's not. It didn't really cost that much extra. I'm going. Mm -hmm. I'll see the the director's preferred, you know, print of it on 70 millimeter. So that. Uh, and it was only done for a few weeks, and most people saw it in a regular theater, so it was chopped off of it or you know cropped or whatever. The um, and then after that, I think that may have been the last film to ever be shown seventy millimeter, or you know the last major one maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I can tell you for sure the theater that showed it uh, that I saw it in twenty fifteen is no longer there. That theater right. is gone now. Right. Right. So. Um, so yeah, so if you want to see the Hateful Eight in seventy millimeter uh, since twenty fifteen, your options basically were to be wealthy, to contact people in the know, have a seventy millimeter print that I'm sure still exists sent to you at a private theater, and have a seventy millimeter projector show it to you. That was the only way to do it, until suddenly a couple of weeks ago, where it became very easy to see it in seventy millimeter. Why? Because the Apple Vision Pro. So the Apple Vision Pro, of course, is creating virtual screens when you're watching a movie. And it can create those screens in any dimensions that right. you want. So it turns out that if you had purchased the Hateful Eight from Apple TV, uh, in you know, in, you own the film or whatever, right. and then you got an Apple Vision Pro, and then you decided, let me see what this looks like on the Apple Vision Pro. It shows it to you in the original aspect ratio. Wow. So we went from years of not being able to see this film in 70 millimeter to all of a sudden, oh, here it is. <laughs> and I feel like I am watching it in a big theater, because that's really what it does feel like. So yeah, so I went and I am enjoying watching The Hateful Eight and I've only, this will be the, um, I, I think I've seen bits and pieces since it, uh, I saw it in the theater. Right. 
um, you know, sometimes something's just on and you're like, oh, and you watch a film, especially with Tarantino movies. You know, it's really easy to watch like 20 minutes and see this monologue or dialogue segment, right. you know. But yeah, so uh, I'm watching it like I originally saw it. And a lot of the people are seeing it for the first time in the full aspect ratio. And it's really cool. And Apple didn't even mention this. Like so, it didn't even get on the radar of like, this is a useful feature of the Apple Vision Pro, being able to see a movie in any aspect ratio that's available. So a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, my assumption then is that somebody somewhere digitized a 70 millimeter copy. Uh, well, yeah, I guess it's yeah. not so much about the, obviously you're seeing digital. I mean, you're, yeah. you're on a digital device. So it's right. not so much about the print being 70 millimeter because right. i think he shot he shot the whole thing on film right so right. everything is it starts with film and everything's been digitized um and you're not seeing film obviously on an apple vision pro right the thing you're seeing is the aspect ratio whatever so question, 26 right. to whatever yeah so the question i have is was there anything preventing you from watching that aspect ratio um on your tv or your computer monitor i think it simply just wasn't made available okay like right, i don't think i don't think you could have said show it to me in the aspect ratio and give me the black bars at top and bottom right i don't right, right. think that was available i think it was always going to show you the I, I imagine they do some panning you know it because that's how they usually do it especially yep. going to this uh you know anything that's widescreen of some some sort being shown, you know, at something that's not quite as widescreen, they do a little panning back and forth. When this character's talking, the, it subtly moves over to the left. When another character's talking, it subtly moves over to the right. Um, and and the interesting thing is watching the movie uh, now, I'm paying attention to that and knowing that he shot it in 70 millimeter. And there are times when I'm like, huh, I wonder what this looks like if I'm not watching it in 26 to 10 right. I, is that the yeah because there is something going on on the left and there is something going on on the right uh so exactly what happens when you're not watching it in you know this uh probably it's panning back and forth or or something different um i don't know of course there are other reasons that also i'm it's interesting to see the movie again uh paying careful attention <laughs> in this particular case so um so yeah. here's here's my what this leads me to. Yeah. Cinerama. Oh yeah. What's Cinerama's ratio? Uh, big. I mean, it's much wider. If if I'm not mistaken, it's um three adjacent 35 millimeters. So whatever that turns out to be 105 oh. millimeter, technically. Yeah, 2.59 um, to one. Yeah. Or yeah. or to, uh, 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 a minimum. It goes up bigger than that. That's a lot. So that's um, I would I would love to hear if um, if there are any movies available hmm. that um, are in that original Cinerama format, and the one that of course matters the most to me um, is two thousand one A Space Odyssey because I think that that would be I've seen it in a Cinerama theater years ago. Um, it was incredible. Uh, there are just some scenes in there that. Uh, really, really pop and make wonderful use of the aspect ratio. Um, and of course, nobody, like you said, nobody has been able to see those since because Cinerama theaters are uh, very few and far between. I think the one in Seattle is now finally getting refurbished and may end up being able to do it again. But um, but like, same thing, same thing with 70 millimeter. Um, you know, Apple headset uh, kind of sort of makes that point moot. Anybody uh can be a be a cinema cinerama theater yeah i uh, so the 70 millimeter technically we should have been using the term panavision right that's the ratio part 70 millimeters about the the film right, right. so uh panavision's 22 to uh, 2.2 to 1 whereas mm -hmm. cinerama is close to 2.6 to 1 give or take a little bit right. um there are other people asking your same thing about 2001 and whether so i i, I don't know um maybe i should uh, try to look and apparently dunkirk from 2017 uh oh no that's that shot in imax yeah i know it, it, the one thing apple did talk about at the beginning was the imax ratio sure right that's available so you can watch imax things that are in the which is going the other way <laughs> which is imax what? is very tall right right um 
But yeah, if 2001 is not available now in Cinerama to to get digitally, um, it may simply be because there was nothing to play it on. And now maybe, uh, well, maybe it's it'll, it would it'll, it would take some work. I mean, like I said, it's if if I understand it correctly, Cinerama was three adjacent separate yeah. films, right? They were synchronized. So. Um, you know, if it's just 35 millimeter, you could digitize each one and then yeah. stitch them in software. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I'm looking forward to seeing if that if that finally happens. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that it's enough for me to get an Apple Vision Pro. No, no, no it's just, it's a bonus. It's yeah. just a, it's a nice bonus, uh, you know, to, to be able to use it that way. And yeah, I have been watching a lot of movies, uh, including 3D uh, movies. As a matter of fact, three movies that I had previously purchased. Hmm. are available in 3D. So I didn't have to pay an extra penny. Um, like I think we watched the the original, uh, the original, but the first Wonder Woman movie, uh, when it came out, Was we did a family movie. Yeah. So we did a family movie night and it when it was first available and it wasn't available for rent yet. So I just said, well, you know, it's a family movie night. I spent the 20 bucks right. and I bought it. So if I look in my collection, there's Wonder Woman. And sure enough, now, if I go back, I can watch Wonder Woman in 3D. You know, it's, it was an automatic upgrade. Right. Uh, yeah. And and a couple, I think I did get a Star Wars movie, too, um, that wasn't available for rent after, you know, after it came out. One of the, I think, episode seven, maybe. And... Um, and there's one other movie I've got in my collection. I can't remember what it is now that automatically went to 3D. So I've got three 3D movies that I could watch. Um, in addition to the Disney movies, because uh, with Disney Plus, there's like a hundred some movies that are just with my subscription and they're in 3D. Right. So I've already watched a couple of uh, a couple of those, like the the Marvels, for instance. I hadn't seen that. I'm meaning to see it, and it came out on Disney Plus, and I hadn't seen it yet. So I watched it, Apple Vision Pro in 3D. Well, I didn't even realize that was a 3D option for that one. We just yeah. watched it last week. So yeah, 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 cool stuff. Speaking of cool stuff, yeah, what you got? <laughs> Let's see. So another thing I'm watching. It's not in 3D, but I I do have to say the special effects are fantastic. I'm watching it in Apple Vision Pro, but it doesn't make, uh, you know, you can watch on regular TV. Masters of the Air, it's the third series from Spielberg and Hanks that's in the, you know, uh, uh, what was the first one called? Um, you know, it's World War II, uh, very realistic World War II. Uh, oh, oh, is that series. Saving Private Ryan? Band, ba no, Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. The first okay. one. Yeah. Right. So, the third series is called Masters of the Air, and it's about the uh, pilots, American pilots, uh, in Europe uh, in World War II, and it's uh, it's it's really good. But what's really impressive about it is the special effects are fantastic. But it's you know it's a, a historical movie, right? It takes place in right. 1944. It's they're not trying to show lasers in outer space and all that. What they <laughs> they're trying to show uh, is massive numbers of b-17 flying fortresses right flying over the air with planes attacking them and you know explosions and getting hit and dropping bombs and all of that um trying to make it look real um even though none of it is real right <laughs> right uh so yeah yeah really have to appreciate you know that whole feeling of like seeing all of this, knowing that none of this was filmed. They didn't create a bunch of B-17s, right. send them up in the air with some cameras and try to, you know, do it. Um, anyway, and, and then of course it's got, you know, the typical, you know, the storylines following uh, some pilots and navigators and, you know, all that uh, through the war. So, uh, and it's on Apple TV plus. So as I think I've, I've mentioned here multiple times, we have a, a penchant for British television these days. We went ahead yeah. and signed up for, I think it's both BritBox and Acorn TV, which are available through Amazon. Um, what we've been watching lately is a series called Luther. It's from 2010, mm -hmm. and it stars um, Idris Elba as a... Uh, um, a broken cop. I'll just say broken. I know that that can be you know taken to mean very... It's it's almost a trope, right? The broken cop and and you know people trying to salvage him and all that kind of stuff. But this guy's really broken. He's got, but in some really really interesting ways. And it's it's a very well done series. It it tends to be a tad 
bloody at times, so it's not necessarily for the weakest stomach, but um, I, we're just finding it very fascinating. And of course, Idris Elba is a wonderful actor. I think he won an Oscar for or a uh, an Emmy for this at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, that's a Luther, and that's on uh, Amazon Plus uh, via BritBox. Cool. All so, right. um, in terms of pointing you at my own stuff. Um, I was very disappointed to learn, in fact, a reader pointed this out to me about a month ago, that um, Authy, which is one of the Google Authenticator compatible two-factor mm -hmm. apps that you can run on your phone, uh, both kinds, on your desktop and so forth, is removing its desktop support. Um, apparently, it'll still run on Apple M1-based uh, OSs, but... Um, or M-based OSs. Yeah. But um, uh, the Windows version is just going away. And uh, that was frustrating for me because that's one of the reasons I've been recommending it for so long. It was very, very convenient um, to have my two-factor codes right there on my desktop without having to necessarily reach for my phone or <laughs> run back up to the bedroom to find my phone. So um, uh, that's going away. And I discovered I already had a solution in place. I will leave that as a hanging mystery. It's a really good solution. I'm really happy with it. It is dealing with the demise of Authy Desktop, askleo.com slash 168085. Awesome. Uh, I, I did a recent video uh, called, uh, Which Cable Do You Need to Connect a Mac to an External Display? And the reason for that uh, video is that time and time again, People contact me with a question about why their display won't do this or why their display looks bad or whatever. And I ask them uh, about what connection they're using. Right. And they are connecting using an HDMI adapter. So mm. this happens because people, first of all, they're really familiar with HDMI. Sure. So if you see a bunch of ports on the back of your screen and you don't know what they are and they just have like the letters DP next to them. Mm. Uh, and then you see an HDMI port. And you're like, oh, I know what that is. And so what do I need to get to hook my Mac up to the screen? Well, let me look online. Oh, HDMI adapter, great. And they buy that for 25 bucks or whatever. And they connect it and they, they're not happy with it. Um, the other port, of course, the DP one, that's DisplayPort, which is the standard way to connect a computer to a screen. And you don't need an adapter to do it at all. You just need a cable. You know, all Macs have these Thunderbolt ports, which output DisplayPort. Mm -hmm. And all you need is a simple, you know, USB on one end to DisplayPort and the other cable. It's not doing any adapting at all. So your Mac is talking directly to the screen and it's cheaper and it gives you all the options. So I kind of explain that because uh, I just get asked that so often. Um, and uh, just, you know, I want people to understand what DisplayPort is and and that yep. that's, that should be their go-to. Yeah, there are cases when a screen may only be HDMI, especially if you're right. hooking up a TV as a screen. Or there are cases where you may find that you bought a good HDMI adapter and all of the options available in DisplayPort are also available to you. And that's right. fine if you want to stick with that. But for I most people, it's like just buy regular DisplayPort cable and it's fine. Does DisplayPort carry audio? Yes, it can. It, okay. it, it usually yeah. depends on the display sure, more sure, than sure, anything sure. else. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's funny because, uh, you know, like you say, people are, are very familiar with HDMI. They've got it on mm. their, their TV. And, and what's interesting in the PC world, of course, is that you know, we don't necessarily have DisplayPort. Um, it's usually HDMI that's coming out of our machines. Oh. Uh, which which is frustrating. Um, some adapters uh, definitely have both, and you know, same thing. Uh, DisplayPort is or its equivalent is um, preferred. But you know, when you think about it, what do people have lying around? Lots and lots of HDMI cables they're not using right. anymore. So that's probably where they you know they they go to that. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, on that note, I think that wraps us up mm -hmm. for another week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you again real soon. Bye-bye. Bye. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com, T-E-H-2-16. If you have a comment or question for us, be sure to leave it on the show notes page. The TEH Podcast is hosted by Leo Notenboom of askleo.com and Gary Rosenswag of macmost.com and edited by Connie Delaney. 
I'm your synthetic announcer, Adam, from 11labs.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here real soon.